You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured number 82. We are talking today to Justin Melito, lead organizing director for Writers Guild of America East about the latest unionizing efforts at Gawker, Salon, and beyond in the world of digital media. But first, the news. On Wednesday, 1,200 workers with aviation safeguards at LaGuardia and JFK airports in the New York area were scheduled to go on strike at 10 p.m. Aviation Safeguards is one of a number of companies that provide subcontracted security officers, baggage handlers, and wheelchair attendants for airlines that include Delta, United, and British Airways. They've been organizing for three years with SEIU-32BJ, in an attempt to win union recognition, and this strike was planned as an escalation in response to what the workers say has been a campaign of union busting. But just hours before the workers were set to walk off the job and probably cause a giant mess at the airports, the company agreed to come to the table and agreed to a deal to avert the strike. Under the terms of the agreement, aviation safeguards will agree to neutrality and will recognize the union if a majority of its employees sign union cards. The union says that it has more more than enough votes to win through card check. They are pushing for wages of $15 an hour and affordable health care for all of the employees at these airports, which are governed by the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Local elected officials have also been calling on the Port Authority to ensure that all of the workers at the airports have a living wage. Of course, these subcontractors, many of them in the, uh, took the place of union workers that existed previously. Um, and, well, we've talked many times on this podcast about the sort of uh, who is the boss problem of, of who is responsible ultimately for the working conditions of these employees. But by threatening to go on strike, these workers called the question because it doesn't really matter who signs your paychecks. Everybody is going to be having a miserable time if a whole bunch of employees at the airport are gone, which most certainly played into the decision of aviation safeguards to come to the table, and it'll be interesting to see if other companies do likewise now that they know that there is the potential for a big old strike. Look out. And in other New York news, the wage board convened earlier this year by Governor Cuomo has finally reached a landmark decision for fast food workers across New York State. The wage board has issued its official recommendation as of today, Wednesday, for $15 an hour for fast food workers across New York. This marks a big win for the fast food workers movement, which, as you might recall, actually started right here in New York. New York City was the uh, ground zero for some of the first fast food worker strikes. Um, It has gone viral around the nation and arguably around the globe, and it is now boomeranged back to its home turf for vindication up in uh, Albany, um, thanks to this new uh, rather esoteric uh, mechanism for unilaterally raising wages uh, under uh, Governor Cuomo's Labor Department. So now that it's managed to bypass the notoriously uh, stagnant and gridlocked uh, Albany legislature, um, it is now uh, going to raise wages um, 
across the board for fast food workers, specifically uh, with New York City fast food workers um, to be paid $15 an hour by 2018, matching the timeline that has been set in San Francisco. And for workers outside of New York City, they would get to $15 an hour by 2021. And that would make them effectively the first fast food workers um, to win $15 across any state. So let's hope this is just the beginning of both, uh, you know, more sector-wide organizing across the country, as well as uh, $15 an hour and beyond wages for other sectors other than fast food, because Lord knows there are a lot of low-wage sectors that could use a raise right now. We'll keep on following the issue, and uh, there won't be another wage board, but there certainly will be more organizing coming down the pipeline. And we have a clip from Long Island Jobs with Justice. I uh, got this interview with Anita Hallis, and she is talking about the uh, prospective wage hike on the eve of the decision of the wage board. So here she is. I think that this is actually a really great opportunity to expand the movement. And I think that, um, you know, while this particular effort was kind of taken on by the governor himself and kind of seeing the need for it, I do think that labor organizations, community organizations really do need to kind of continue to move forward with the structure that they've built, which is actually incorporating a variety and a very diverse group of, of workers in low wage, in the low-wage job sector. Um, and I think that the Cypher 15 movement has actually done a really fantastic job of disseminating the messaging of 15 hours and $15 an hour in a union to many different sectors, including retail, including um, home health care workers and nurses, including adjunct professors, including um, airline employees. Uh, I think that it needs to, that needs to continue. And I think that this is actually a really um, great kind of jumping point in order to say like, well, fast food workers today, now retail workers, adjunct professors, home health care workers tomorrow. Um, I think that it, it builds a tremendous amount of momentum. And I think that what really needs to happen is that we need to continue to work off of this momentum because this is just one victory in the larger scheme of things. But there are many other workers in low-wage jobs who, who need to see $15 an hour. Um, I think that this is shifting the, the kind of overall consciousness of what it means to be a low-wage worker. And I think that this has helped many people recognize through the testimonies of fast food workers that it's actually an epidemic that we're facing, that workers who are working in low-wage jobs struggling to survive is an epidemic throughout the entire state. Um, and that fast food workers are not the only workers and that there's still so much, so many other workers that need to be making $15 an hour and if not more than that. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, $15 an hour probably isn't enough to live on in Long Island. No, absolutely not. It's not, it, it definitely is not. Um, it's definitely not enough for a single parent to survive on Long Island, even, even two parents to survive on Long Island. It's not even close to enough. If we're looking at it where, you know, a, a, a living wage out here on Long Island is probably closer to the $20 to $23 an hour range. And that was Anita Hallis from Jobs with Justice. So longtime listeners, or even fairly recent listeners, I think, um, will remember our reporting on port truck driver strikes in the past. The drivers at Pacific 9 Transportation at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach, California, are on strike now for the sixth time at this one particular company. 
in protest against unfair labor practices, particularly the misclassification of these workers as independent contractors. As we've discussed until we're blue in the face on this show, the truck drivers are responsible for all the costs of their labor, their trucks, repairs, fees, and insurances, while not having the freedom to work where and when they want that a true independent contractor would have. This industry has been functioning on this model for decades since it was deregulated in the early 80s. This is the model that we now think of as belonging to the sharing economy companies like Uber, but there's nothing new or high-tech about it. Uh, Many of these port truck drivers have won court cases and hearings before the labor commissioner ruling that they were victims of hundreds of thousands of dollars in wage theft, and a hearing for PAC-9 workers is scheduled to begin on Monday. These non-union workers are supported by the Teamsters Union. They say this strike is indefinite, meaning they will end it when they get some sort of uh, concessions from the bosses. And they are picketing marine terminals and at Pacific 9's headquarters. A couple of other companies have already made deals to treat their workers as employees properly and for them to organize with the Teamsters through this process in recent months. On the other side of the country, port truckers at the port of Savannah are also pressuring for a solution to the problem of misclassification. The Georgia State Senate Study Committee on Employee Misclassification held its first hearing on Tuesday this week in Savannah and heard from those port truckers, many of whom I met at an organizing meeting last year. They are hoping for new legislation in this famously union-unfriendly state that would crack down on employers taking advantage of their workers in this way. And for more on the Georgia organizing, you can go back and listen to belabored episode 57 with Ben Spate, who has been organizing the Savannah port truckers. And the big buzzword uh, in the headlines this week was Grexit. As you might know, that would be the um, anticipated exit of Greece from the Eurozone. Um, But that hasn't actually happened yet, but it seems to be sort of on the tip of everyone's tongue. Everyone seems to understand that uh, the monetary union is uh, about to implode at some point, just not sure when. And of course, um, whether it happens uh, tomorrow or 10 years from now, Greece is going to be feeling the brunt of the financial pain as it has been doing now for some years. Um, so the new deal that uh, that Alexis Tsipras agreed to um, reluctantly uh, contains even worse conditions um, as uh, uh, as part of the um, bailout by the Troika. It includes things like more privatization, more pension cuts, deeper reductions in social spending, uh, more labor market, quote, restructuring, which inevitably means, um, you know, widespread attacks on uh, labor protections. Um, And uh, going forward into the future, the uh, pensioners of today will look like they're going to uh, be feeling even more pain. They're already, many of them are already living on something like, you know, less than 700 euros a month, um, and that's about to probably dip even further. Meanwhile, um, taxes, uh, extremely aggressive taxes on things like food, um, are going to rise substantially, leading to potential job losses and a rising cost of living for a G- uh, an economy with a GDP that is rapidly shriveling into nothingness. Um, so on that cheery note, uh, it looks like more pain coming down the pipeline for Greece, um, and, uh, and it looks like uh, there's no end in sight for the um, actual resolution of Greece's toxic debts. As Mark Blythe told me uh, for a piece that I have up with the nation, everyone seems to understand that the debts are unsustainable. No one wants to be the one pulling the trigger. So whether it's Greece that gives first or the actual Eurozone, everybody seems to be going down sooner or later. Michelle is so cheerful, isn't she? Um, 
We should also yeah. note that uh, Belabored's original executive producer, Sarah Leonard, is in Greece right now, and we will have her on when she returns to tell us more about what it's like on the ground there. The big buzz story for the last couple of months has been the unionization of new media outlet Gawker, which has a multi, uh, multi-website um, empire of sort of snarky, sort of fun, pop culture, politics, media, and sports websites, in case you are not already reading Gawker, probably like on the sly while you're at work. On the heels of Gawker writers' victory in their union election, the workers at Salon, another online media outlet known for its progressive coverage, also announced that they wanted to form a union. They put out a letter signed by their entire staff to tell us about what's going on at Gawker now that they've won, what's going on at Salon now that they've announced. We have Justin Melito, the organizing director at the Writers Guild of America East, who has been organizing with both of these media outlets as well as many, many others. So first off, tell us where, sort of where are things in the organizing process right now with Gawker and with Salon? So Gawker um, has, you know, the majority of employees voted for the union um, and they have begun to get together and form their negotiating committee and develop a list of issues and things that they want to focus on for their contract. Um, Salon, unfortunately, we still have not heard back from the company uh, about whether they will recognize the union. At Salon, all 26 editorial employees signed union cards saying they wanted the union and put together a letter about uh, why they wanted to form the union and, and why they wanted the union to be recognized through a card check from the company. And we did have one brief conversation where the company indicated that they would be deciding, you know, fairly soon about um, about that request and but the time is is past due in terms of getting back to us in a timely manner. If things continue to be at an impasse with Salon, would you then go to a full NLRB process? You're saying we'd go back to get together with the you know the writers at Salon and the editors at Salon and talk through what our options would be. And certainly, one of those options uh, could be an NLRB election. Could also be um, you know a non NLRB election. Um, or in, in a leverage campaign of some sort um, demanding recognition. Um, it's just disappointing to even, you know, have to go through this process in terms of what are the alternatives to card check recognition, because that really is the sort of civilized way to recognize and respect people's rights towards free association. It's how every other industrialized country handles labor management relations and a company like Salon who purports progressive values and has progressive content, it should be a very, a relatively easy decision for them to make, but they still seem to be uh, sort of trying to figure out what to do. Um, but we're hopeful still. I mean, it could be that we hear back from them fairly soon that they are, in fact, going to recognize the union, and if that's the case, we'll then move on to uh, negotiations there as well. Interesting how that played out differently between Gawker and Salon. Um, can you talk about the process by which uh, the organizing at these outlets began? Um, did the workers uh, approach you? Um, were there specific concerns that they brought up? You know, in both cases, the workers um, approached us and were interested 
um, you know, in sort of in, in interested in seeing um, the labor movement and unions being a part of this sort of not so new anymore, but certainly growing media industry. And so uh, there was a combination of certainly people wanting to protect what they have and not see it eroded or changed as the media landscape changes, um, but also a sort of a, a big aspect of seeing this as an overall movement and an industry-wide movement and less about one specific company and much more about being able to provide uh, standards across the board uh, for for foreign industry. And so knowing they are part of a, um, a greater movement, I think, encouraged people to be uh, active early on and to maintain active. And it's very much self-directed in that the organizing committee and committees have been large and active, and they have done the outreach to their coworkers, and we as organizers have just been helping facilitate that and providing uh, space for them within our union to have those conversations. I thought it was interesting that they reached out to you specifically at the Writers Guild. Um, you've had experience there organizing white-collar workers in the kind of field that tends to bust unions by telling workers that they're lucky to have their dream job and that this work is its own reward and you should just be grateful and stop asking for health insurance. Um, how did that experience prepare you for organizing writers in, you know, online media in at Gawker and Salon? The Writers Guild of America East is, has actually a really strong tradition um, of representing all kinds of writers and Particularly, um, the leadership has paid as much, if not more, attention uh, to the digital space than any any uh, group of union leaders that I know. Um, if you think about the Writers Guild strike, which was very much, uh, you know, in 2008, so uh, seven years ago now, uh, they took the strike and they took the the risk to protect jurisdiction over over writing that that is done and production that is done in the digital space. So it's not uh, surprising that the leadership at the Writers Guild and uh, and people within the creative community look to the Writers Guild as a union to uh, protect the rights of digital writers. So um, it's 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 very similar. You know, it's it's we're a union for creative professionals and so some some people who are writing for reality or nonfiction television might also write for PBS or also have a screenplay that they're working on, and uh, and we have members at CBS and ABC. So we have legacy news shops where uh, people um, people work hard as as journalists already. So um, it's a good fit, you know. It's it's um, as a union that's active and organizing and opening up the union to a new generation of writers and trying to build power for the creative class. Um, it's encouraging to see. Um, new spaces and, and new people coming into that because it's uh, many of the, the media companies are, are certainly organized um, and the standards, uh, if there's not a pushback collectively in different aspects of, of the media industry, the standards can be eroded fairly quickly. And I think I think that's part of what's driving this is people realizing that there is lots of money flowing through digital media now. Are these the first two sort of... Uh... Um, exclusively online journalism outlets that uh, WGA has organized? 
Yeah, those are the first two that have organized with us. Um, we've had conversations over the years with people who have worked at exclusively online digital outlets that didn't lead towards either majority support or majority recognition. So we put ourselves out there as a resource for digital writers and online news sources. Through we have a digital caucus that um, has primarily been web television writers, but at times, um, like the folks at the um, Onion News Network had come through there, and lots of other different kinds of people who have done different kinds of digital work have come through various trainings or events and meetings that we've had. But in terms of like actually sort of organizing to win collective bargaining, these are the first two that we've had for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so on that note, um, what do you think you perhaps have drawn from the um, organizing campaigns um, at, say, younger publications that are primarily digital, like Truth Ad or uh, The Daily Beast or, you know, places that um, are online arms of existing print publications? Um, what do you draw from the model of organizing that's been used uh, primarily in, in uh, print journalism and, and newspapers? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, anytime a group of uh, workers is is organizing, whether it's specific to a print journalism or television journalism, like we have at CBS and ABC or sort of a local affiliate, um, or whether it's magazines and, you know, that there are some um, similarities related to the, the kind of organizing that occurs. But in, you know, the similarities go beyond that in terms of, that, you know, com- people coming together to either um, reach out in a positive way towards management um, and or coming together collectively to protect what they have. And it's not always necessarily um, a friendly relationship. No matter where, what industry it is or, or what type of workers there are, there's some stuff that's very common. And that is that if there are, in fact, a group of people who are committed to doing the work of you know, talking to their coworkers one-on-one and taking the leadership um, and making it happen. Like, those are the things that determine success a little bit more so than the type of work they are or the type of work that they're doing. Um, and so in the case of Gawker and Salon, um, there's a group of people who were committed to seeing this happen and committed to leading the effort. Um, and that, you know, that's, it's been very strong in terms of, comparative to other types of organizing campaigns that I've worked on, that the organizing committees here are particularly strong and united um, and sort of committed to seeing it through and making it happen. The Gawker Drive in particular kind of got a lot of attention in part because of how public they made the whole process, Um, you know, debating it on public, you know, threads on the website, things like that. Um, What do you think were some of the advantages of doing this pro- this whole process in public like that and any of the disadvantages or drawbacks or people resisted sort of putting their opinions in public or anything? Sure, yeah. I mean, the first thing to know is that that, that was a product of what the people that were organizing wanted to do and a product of the culture where they work. Um, and so oftentimes uh, a union can make a mistake and try to... Um, force people into their culture of organizing or into their culture, period. Uh, and that's that's sort of a, a good lesson for people to take away from that, um, be them organizers or staff or, or leadership within the union, 
is that you have to really um, take into account where people are coming from um, and and allow them uh, to develop their leadership and their voice in a way that makes sense for them. And so, I, you know, any anybody who's spent much time organizing, um, I think, was surprised by, and, and perhaps appalled by the process of people posting how they're voting and talking about how they're voting in that way. And, uh, you know, I saw some people posting that this is what a, what kind of organizing strategy is this and sort of, you know, second guessing and, and, um, that from a sort of the, from an organizing perspective. And so the, you know, the lesson there is, um, I don't think it was necessarily, um, a model to replicate unless that's how the, 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 the group of, of workers at an online place going forward at another spot would want to do it that way. Um, but, but regardless, it was the way that the folks there felt comfortable talking about the union and the way they felt they had to talk about it. And so, um, you know, that's, that's a primary lesson is to just, um, you know, allow something like that to prosper. The other big thing is that the company was not opposed to their efforts. So, uh, they were allowed to have a free and open discussion like that. And that really is, uh, the big difference in many ways at Gawker. But interestingly, at Salon, where they didn't know how their, uh, management would respond, they've all been very public in terms of signing a letter, uh, in, in support, a public letter in support of the union. So, and that actually is a very strong way to go about it. And, you know, you want to build up to that and but the more public that people can be about why they're for collective action and for collective bargaining and supportive of the union effort, the stronger the effort is. It's just oftentimes there's there's an element of fear there that that prevents that. So um, when Gawker went public with its uh, organizing drive, um, I think there were some people who were skeptical that it was primarily kind of... Um, uh, kind of a publicity move on the part of the Gawker management or that uh, they were deliberately trying to come across as um, kind of an ultra-progressive, um, uh, you know, publication and uh, that it was sort of, uh, I-, I guess, you know, very publicly oriented in that way. Um, how did the staffers respond to that? And I guess, how do you think that played out? Well, I think that, like, there's a difference between... Um doing something as a strictly PR move and then actions that reflect that they did something somewhat ultra progressive, which, you know, their actions were progressive. They did not obstruct the union in any way and they allowed neutrality and they recognized the union after, you know, the majority voted in favor of it. So I'm sure, or maybe there's certainly an element of spectacle in it for the company. Um, but ultimately this was driven by employees. So, uh, everything the company did was in response to the fact that the employees wanted to organize and the employees came together and, and made this happen. And, you know, one of the great things that happened was, of course, the, the why we are organizing uh, or why we decided to organize peace that Hamilton Nolan did, which many people sort of sent around and tweeted and posted. And, and I think that that uh, was a great service to the labor movement and to the digital space for people to see in black and white um, the issues and the reasons that people should come together and organize. And so that in a public manner, I would say, served uh, the the workforce, both at Gawker and beyond, more more than uh, just sort of being a PR stunt by Gawker. Uh, it, you know, you could argue that it was a, 
a PR stunt by the labor movement. Um, but it's it's not a stunt when it's actually real and, and people are organizing and, and dealing uh, dealing through these issues and going through a union drive. So, um, yes, it, it would, it's a bit... It's a, it definitely... Uh, just because the fact that it was so public and, and got so much coverage, and I think uh, doesn't take away from the fact that uh, people did a great job articulating why they wanted to form a union, and uh, that's already helping folks organize. Yeah, I was going to say, my experience when I was still working in these times and we were organizing was that, you know, here we are at, at a publication that runs articles all the time saying that card check is the way to go and workers have a right to form a union and all of that, and it was, you know, it, it calling the question in that way, no matter how progressive the workplace says it is and no matter what sorts of things are were advocated it was still you know it was still a process to get them to uh you know see those ideals with their own workforce as uh as kind of an aside i mean um fast forwarding to the last week or so um as I'm sure you probably know, there's a bit of a dust-up or slash meltdown over the pulling of the supposedly controversial article about uh, Condé Nast CFO David Geithner. And um, as that whole thing shakes out, I won't ask you to comment perhaps directly on the on the events that unfolded, but um, how – I guess I was wondering, you know, the, the existence of a union um, and union protection was cited um, when uh, the editorial staff responded to that move um, on the part of the um, – the management. Um, I was wondering if you have any insights as to uh, what what is the role of a union uh, in in disputes like that, where it's between the corporate side and the editorial side. Yeah, no, I definitely don't have any particular comment on that particular one. You know, it's as it moves on to a different phase. I, I'm not involved with the contract negotiations or um, or or that issue in particular. Um, but in terms of what people wanted and said they spoke about as part of the organizing drive is, is um, you know, editorial freedom and protection from uh, decisions related to, and this, you know, this was not manifested in any sort of contract proposal or anything like that, just through one-on-ones with people at Gawker. One thing I heard loud and clear, and I've heard it from folks at Salon as well, is that they want to be free to, to be journalists and do their work as journalists without feeling that market and corporate pressure controls or alters their story in any way. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's the, that's a vision that our union has um, had uh, related to its work since its inception. And, and it's, um, it's a core value for so many journalists and so many people. And, and it's, and it's good to see the labor movement and, and unions endorse that core value as well. Um, and as society becomes more corporatized and media is increasingly corporatized. That that's that's an important role for that. Mm-hmm. So that that actually could that actually be um, built into a collective bargaining agreement, some kind of protection for editorial freedom or independence. I think so. I mean, I think that you know certainly um, having things codified in terms of what people's jobs are and what protections they have related to those jobs um, is is common. Uh, sort of how much you can get from a company related to that is, of course, about how much power you have as, as a workforce. So um, if um, if this is a, a top priority for people in negotiation and, and 
and they have the power to get that through negotiations, I think it's, it certainly is possible. When the Gawker story went public, there were a lot of stories about how unions were suddenly cool because the millennials or something were, were unionizing. Um, and I kind of thought most of them were a little bit overblown and, and perhaps were written by people who don't normally write about labor unions. Um, but public opinion polls do show that people's opinions of unions, particularly among those much maligned millennials, um, have gone up. What do you think is changing here and how are you moving um, as a union to sort of capitalize on it? I hate using the word capitalize in that sentence, but you know, you know what I mean? Yes. I mean, my sense has always been, though, that um, people do want unions when they're in a workplace, whether no matter how much they like or dislike the workplace, the idea of coming together collectively to make improvements is a pretty standard opinion of folks that I've talked to from, you know, multiple generations. So I don't know that it's sort of unique to millennials necessarily or that there is more um, interest among millennials. What I do think is that, you know, and I guess there's polls that are indicating that. So that may be the case. And certainly my experience has been mostly with millennials in in the creative workforce in New York City. And there's definitely support for the union. The question just is uh, around employers' opposition. And, you know, at Gawker, when the employer opposed the union so strongly, didn't oppose the union and was so neutral, that allowed for for the debate to prosper and to come out in a very positive way. And that's, that's, that was the big difference there in terms of like how, like what I had said earlier on about making sure to um, allow the space for people to sort of formulate their opinions and run a campaign in the way that's comfortable for them. I think that's how unions can and should uh, adapt and that's really difficult because I think that, that um, you know, sometimes union staff and, and, and will uh, speak to uh, people, workers that are maybe non-union and sort of speak at them a bit about what the union is and what the union should be, as opposed to just facilitating the conversation among the workforce about what it is that they want to be um, and can be by organizing. So. And I think millennials put a certain premium on transparency and open conversation and sort of rapid and instantaneous communication. So recognizing that and sort of having a plan to have that be part of the organizing and and realizing that that's going to happen no matter what you do anyway uh, is is really important. And I think it's a lot easier said than done. I think, think, uh, you know, as organizers, it can be difficult to allow for that and and not sort of try to control a process in a way that's not helpful. So we've talked in the past about organizing freelancers with um, both your work with organizing freelance contract producers on reality TV shows and also the potential for organizing freelance journalists um, like your two co-hosts here. Can you talk a little bit about what you think might work for freelance journalists and the possibilities for solidarity between these newly unionized staffers at these online outlets that, you know, have freelancers contributing them for for very little money? And also, what do do freelancers need to know about trying to organize? Obviously, there's many challenges organizing freelancers that uh, don't exist at the staff level, right? And so 
but there's one thing is to think about some of the opportunities related to that. And so, you know, freelancers don't necessarily have, uh, as you know, a loyalty to one particular company. And, um, and that can be helpful in organizing that, that doing stuff, it's important to do stuff on an industry-wide basis and to think about the industry as a whole, or at least large segments of the industry when planning events and then planning organizing campaigns. And that, you know, that's a, that's, that, that, that's harder in a lot of ways that you can't just organize this one um, isolated piece and think that it's going to bring up standards and, and um, improve the whole industry as a whole, especially when somebody may not be there in a year or is working at five different places at the same time. And so I think that like having an approach that integrates events and networking and seeing the union as more than just collective bargaining, I think is, is essential. Um, and I think that, uh, bringing freelancers and others together in the room from many different places and having them talk about and devise strategies is important. Um, and that it's, you know, not centered again, not centered around one particular company, not centered around one particular contract, but really, you know, cross, uh, across multiple companies. And, and, you know, you do have the, the craft in common and that, uh, there's a role for the union to play in that certainly. And, perhaps around professional development and mentorship and really thinking, um, thinking about how making, you know, allowing people to be part of the union when there isn't necessarily um, an obvious opening for them to do so, uh, but because they happen to work at company X where there is a union contract. And so for us, that's meant developing caucus models and like places where members and non-members can participate together in events and, and conversations like this. Uh, but you know, we're just sort of scratching the surface on that in a lot of ways. And there's a lot more we can do and perhaps, uh, other unions can do in collaboration sort of multi-union efforts. Um, and on that sort of digital organizing front, do you see any models springing up that you think are promising? Um, you know, we've heard a lot about crowdsource workers, um, you know, uh, uh, workers that work exclusively through telecommuting, through platforms like that as freelancers. Um, they're finding ways to get together online, you know, and, and exchange information about uh, how to organize and how to press for their rights. And I was wondering if you uh, saw any uh, promising kind of models coming out of that area. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that there's a need for some more digital tools related to organizing and freelance and remote workforce. And so both at Gawker Salon and other places, as you guys know, not everybody's working in the same place and certainly oftentimes not even in the same city. And so that's just required, you know, that that necessitates communicating in other ways other than face to face. And so uh, working through different platforms and ways for people to engage uh, is essential. And I think there's great hope in that. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it, it, it can move things quicker too, in some ways. And so um, because people are sort of constantly communicating and are in touch with each other in a, in a different way um, that conversations can happen quicker. Um, and so that's one thing that I definitely saw, both at Salon and Gawker, is that people are reaching out to each other, even though they're sort of further away from from each other than they are in the normal, you know, non-digital workspace. There's the, that's not slowing them down in terms of communicating with each other. So. To wrap up, um, what should we keep in mind about uh, WGA's plans 
going forward? Are you planning on organizing more digital shops, or should we keep an eye out for anything on the horizon? And how do people reach you if they work at a digital shop and they want your help? We have a a platform where people can contact us at digitalwritersunion.org. And so that just has some of the background on the uh, last campaign. And so that's one place. But yeah, so we've been in contact with people uh, at multiple companies and sort of helping people, um, and you know, helping people figure out the process and giving people a roadmap to organizing. Um, and so, if in fact there's interest where people work, um, we're more than happy to to help people come up with the most appropriate plan and also assess the feasibility of it and give people um, a structure for organizing and a place to meet and talk about organizing and share stories and, and experiences with them uh, to help help them build build stuff industry-wide. So uh, I think there there is a lot of interest, and, and, uh, and I think that's a good thing, and I think it's a necessary thing for there to be more than just a couple places organized for this to work. It has to really you know, be a large sort of more common thing to go work in a digital shop that's knowing that there's a union there because uh, it's going to help with the standards for everybody. And that was Justin Melito of Writers Guild of America East talking about union organizing over at Gawker Salon and the rest of the digital media horizon. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. So, now it's time for ARG! I wish I'd written that, where we talk about our picks for the week uh, that we wish we had written, but alas, did not. Sometimes you just know a piece is going to make you go ARG simply because of the title and the byline. Stephanie Luce's piece, Time is Political at Jacobin, was definitely going to get that reaction from me even before I read it. We talk about time, I talk about time, on this podcast a lot, whether it be unreliable scheduling or part-time work, or the recent announcement that the Obama administration would be revising its over- the overtime threshold for workers. We talk about the eight-hour day movement and the lack of paid vacation for Americans. We talk about domestic workers who live in the homes of their employers and have their whole lives taken up by work. It is no surprise to any regular listener of Belabored that we think time is political. Um, But Stephanie Luce is a labor scholar based at the Murphy Institute here in New York, and as such, her piece contains lots of interesting data. For example, the fact that the retail sector went from being about 70 to 80% full-time jobs several decades ago to approximately 70% part-time jobs today, or that zero-hours contracts have spread in the UK and Australia after the 2008 financial crisis, which allow an employer to hire a worker but give them no hours at all at any given time. And those are now a reality for for 19% of UK hotel and restaurant workers. Or that increasingly sophisticated computerized scheduling systems have broken hours down into 15-minute chunks, the better to send workers home that 15 minutes early, which adds up, saving the boss millions every year. The bosses, of course, don't think that workers have a right to their time, even while they work hard to preserve their own time. Luce notes that one video from a scheduling company brags, quote, that the manager can alter the schedule from his phone while doing something more enjoyable than rescheduling everyone that wants to whine about their shifts. 
We, of course, at Belabored see a right to our time as much more than just whining. Stephanie Luce notes that many organizations, including our Walmart and the Retail Action Project, have been working on scheduling issues that San Francisco has even instituted a Retail Workers Bill of Rights. But most important, she notes, is that while we fight for fair scheduling for workers, we need to have a vision of what the long-term solution is. She writes, quote, certainly too few hours is a serious problem, but the solution is not necessarily more hours of work or a return to a 40-hour work week. The notion of flexibility has appeal because in reality, there are many employees who want or need an adjustable work week, either to care for family, go to school, deal with a disability, pursue outside hobbies, or simply because working 40 hours per week is too much. The most important solution, she concludes, is workers organizing, of course, to have a voice in the workplace, one that will allow different people to find a way to meet their different needs while still making a living and preserving their free time, as the eight-hour day movement put it, hours for what we will. And speaking of what we will, uh, my piece is sort of resonant with that. It is by Bryce Covert over at The Nation, and it's called, Is There Room for Women Workers Under Capitalism? Bryce Covert reflects on a piece that ran in The Nation by Betty McMorrin Gray back in the 1970s at the uh, cusp of uh, sort of the latest wave of feminism. Um, And she wrote that under capitalism, quote, women will regularly get kicked out of the workforce as unnecessary, constituting an always contingent pool of labor because subquote, capitalism, which rarely requires full employment, cannot use increasing number of numbers of women workers. In other words, she was basically saying that under capitalism, inevitably women will sort of get the short end of whatever stick the labor force hands them and will always be relegated into the position of a permanent underclass and will always form sort of a surplus army of uh, feminized labor. Um, And uh, it actually, it's interesting to reflect on that piece uh, 40 years out because, well, her thesis didn't actually uh, exactly come to fruition. It turns out that uh, the neoliberal economy made very good use of women, but uh, in unanticipated ways. Um, The question now is whether that worked out for the women. Um, And Bryce Covert actually uh, uh, challenges this notion that just because women have, say, a foot in the door, a leg up, or able to break through the glass ceiling, whatever cliche you want to stick in there, um, that they have actually advanced in any substantive way on a social level. Um, she's basically saying that, um, you know, there continues to be um, wage inequities, um, inequalities in the workplace, inequalities in treatment, and just... Um, you know, general degradation of women's labor um, in many workforces, white and blue collar. And she, but you know, she argues that the current disadvantages that women experience are not really, you know, quote natural byproducts of capitalism, leading to ever greater exploitation. I mean, they they are a product of capitalist exploitation, but they also have a specific gendered inflection. Um, and a very specific American inflection. She argues that compared to other countries with more generous pro-family policies, um, American women workers typically are excluded when it comes to maternity leave. They do not get the same access to child care. They do not get the same access to scheduling flexibility, which, of course, we just talked about. Um, And uh, Covert writes, capitalism, after all, does not ascribe value for the work that gets done inside the home. In pre-capitalist societies, women were certainly subjugated and oppressed, but because all work was done to sustain the lives of the people who did it, 
plowing a field or baking a loaf of bread, were equally essential. Under capitalism, work done outside the home can be sold for wages to capital, etc., etc. So basically, the capitalist system of monetizing work and ascribing value um, in financial terms is sort of uh, inherently, in many ways, antithetical to what we typically think of as women's work, and that cleavage still exists. However, the solution is not simply to give women more opportunities to be exploited for the labor that is typically done in the home. Rather, it is to rethink what the workforce really is, how the workplace is structured, and how our lives are structured around work. The answer lies in achieving a greater value in life outside of the material realm so that we're not all bean counting for, you know, an extra uh, whatever is uh, considered, uh, you know, nominally pay equity or gender parity in the workplace. Uh, Rather, the goal should be finding a solution that works for everyone to lead a balanced life and to share duties in an equitable way, in a way that respects gender differences but does not let them uh, uh, press and rule over people. So ultimately, um, building a better economic system, even under capitalism or even outside capitalism, necessitates thinking about economic equity as a means towards social equity, not the other way around. And that's a task for everyone to undertake, regardless of gender. It's summer. We're all on. You should all be on vacation anyway, right? Right. Yes. Oh wait, we don't have paid vacation in this. Twenty-four country. hours for what we will. Woo! <laughs> so on on that note, we're going to go on vacation. No, we're not going on vacation. We don't get vacations. We're freelancers. We're freelancers. But thank you for listening. As always, um, you can always tweet at us at hashtag belabored. Email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you're if, organizing at your digital workplace. If you are organizing at your digital or non-digital workplace. If you are on strike or thought about going on strike this week. Um, if you have questions that we should save up and ask Sarah when she gets back from Greece. And uh, if you are around next Wednesday the 29th, I will be in conversation with my dear friend Eric Loomis about his new book, Out of Sight, which is about corporations outsourcing disaster, about outsourcing of both labor and environmental disasters away from where Americans might want some responsibility taken from them. Um, It will be at the same place that our Belabored Live was at, at 61 Local, at 7 p.m. on the 29th. So once again, thank you all for listening and we'll be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.